0: Hey guys, uh, if you've listened to this podcast for any time at all, you know how much I care about keeping pet care accessible to pet owners, and um, and how much I hate when people don't have the resources they need to take care of their pets, or staff included. Guys, if you're here, you're probably pretty hardcore about pet health care. Figo Pet Insurance helps you and your clients prepare for the unexpected so that you never have to make the tough choice between your pet's health and your wallet. <laughs> Whether uh, these pets are, are eating out of the trash or diving off of furniture, pets don't always make the best decisions. We know that. But with FIGO, you can and pet owners can. Designed for pets and their people, FIGO allows you to worry less and play more with customizable coverage for accidents, illness, and routine wellness. To get a quick and easy quote, visit figopet.com slash coneofshame. That's F-I-G-O-P-E-T. Dot com slash cone of shame. Figo's policies are underwritten by Independence American Insurance. Company. Welcome, everybody, to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Doctor Andy Work, guys. I have a great episode for you today with my friend, cardiologist uh, and rising legend. Dr. Anna McManame or Dr. Matt, as she is known at Purdue, where she is an assistant clinical professor. She is a, um, gosh, she's awesome. She is such an excellent teacher. I met her just by chance early this year. This is her third episode of The Cone of Shame and I just, I can't get enough of her. Uh, She is so uh, matter of fact and to the point and such a, just a good teacher. There's just, she just rains pearls of wisdom down on me as I as I ask her these questions, and I am a better doctor having talked to her. Guys, today we are talking about a young bulldog who comes in to have brachycephalic airway surgery, and that's when we find the heart murmur, and ultimately we end up talking about pulmonic stenosis in the bulldogs. Uh, super fascinating conversation, really interesting. Uh, man, a bunch of stuff I'm going to be looking out for in the future that I'm not looking out for in the past. Like, you know? You, you learn, you you know better, and you do better. That's what medicine is, guys. You're gonna love this. Let's get into it. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We wanna help you in your veterinary career.
1: Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Anna McManame. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you, Andy?
0: I'm so great. Thanks for being back. This is your third time on, uh, yeah. <laughs> on the podcast. Well, you have been a very popular guest in the, fat, in the past. Um, as I, I looked at our YouTube and, and uh, as we're recording this, your video with me came out like less than a week ago and it's got like 100 and some views already. And so that's pretty good since we just started oh. doing YouTube. So uh, you're, uh, you're, you're doing good stuff and I'm, you're fun to talk to. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Oh man, always. I'm just gonna apologize right ahead of time. Um, I might not be at my best today because uh, I'm going through some stuff, and uh, my it's just it's gonna be hard to hear. But my wife used the last of the almond milk that I was planning on for my smoothie, <laughs> and like she didn't say anything. She's <laughs> left. She just left. She's left. I found a recycling bin. Like I was like, time for my smoothie, and it wasn't there. And so my my world is kind of on fire. Um, yeah. My love, my love is a lie. Uh, it's what. <laughs> I took away. So I just want to apologize for that. Let's uh, but while I get over uh, while I get over my 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 feelings of loss and contemplate a smoothie with tap water like a peasant <laughs> Ugh, would have. God. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, uh, I have a case that I would like to change the topic to and talk to you about. You ready for it? I'm ready. All right, cool. I have a bulldog, a uh, a little-ish bulldog. She is about two years of age. Her name is Baguette which is a fun bulldog and baguette, the two-year-old bulldog. Her face kind of looks like a baguette. I guess I got a squish, like maybe a croissant face. Is um, she a
1: French bulldog? She is not. She's an English
0: bulldog, which is really like, mm, someone missed the trick there. Um, but yeah, she is in for stenotic airway surgery. Her little nostrils are just completely pinched closed. And so she's about two years old and, um, and this was recommended. And so she has come in. And we're getting ready for the surgery and I'm a sculpting a heart murmur on this two year old dog. She seems asymptomatic. She's bouncing around. There's no coughing. There's no nothing. Um, I just wanted to go ahead and pull this out for you and sort of say, what are your thoughts when I'm looking at the, uh, at this little brachycephalic dog that's got a heart murmur? Are those things related? Uh, is this something that we're worried about? Uh, what kind of monitoring should we be looking at? Just, just start to unpack for me. How do you treat that?
1: Yeah, so I would say that we actually see this scenario not uncommonly. So some of these dogs, maybe they'll even have a clinical sign of, quote unquote, exercise intolerance. Like they get out of breath quickly. And the most logical thing is it's their airway because these breathe. Yeah, because she can't breathe.
0: I mean, I, I, would, I would 100% be like, I know what. I got yeah. ding, ding. Yeah. I know what this is.
1: Got it. Done. Um, but yeah, on really close examination, once they're either sedated pre-anesthetically or they are just stop wiggling, um, someone hears a murmur. And so I usually have a rule that if I ever have someone that says, I hear a murmur in a dog younger than about three to five, I kind of keep inching my ears up because sometimes we're not catching these congenital murmurs as early. Um, But I'd say solidly if the patient's less than three years of age and the murmur is a three or more, I consider that likely congenital heart disease that warrants further evaluation. Okay. I will say with bulldogs, like their anatomy just doesn't lend itself nicely towards clean auscultation. So it's um, some yeah. the rumors are really hard to hear. You can't tell over their referred airway noise, their snorting, um, or their chest confirmation that like you can't hear the noise loud enough. So um, anytime I have a brachycephalic that's a bulldog in particular, or any of these pity terriers that are now getting more and more bully-like, yeah. um, my top differential is pulmonic stenosis in those dogs. Okay. Uh, we're seeing it happen so commonly that even if they're asymptomatic or we think they're asymptomatic and I hear a murmur, it's louder than a three, it's a young dog, I'd be worried about pulmonic stenosis. That murmur is usually on the left side of the chest, but can radiate to the right side of the chest. So okay. I would recommend a further workup before anesthetizing that dog.
0: Okay, cool. So let's start to unpack what that workout looks like in general practice. So I agree with that. I would say to the owners, hey, I'm I'm a bit concerned about this. They they've They've been great. They're here for you know, airway surgery, um, they're invested in the pet, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to them about taking a closer look. What is, what does that look like in your mind?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I think not many people think to do, but something that I actually recommend doing is if you have even just like a lead to ECG, so just an ECG machine that you would use for an anesthetic patient, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to be diagnostic, doesn't be anything fancy, but if you hook up that ECG lead, I'm looking for axis deviations, so I expect a sinus rhythm, so QRS, and T. But dogs with significant right heart remodeling, we can see that the QRS complex it looks inverted, so they have a really deep S wave, um, even in lead two. So it tells us that more of their electrical energy is actually going towards the right side of their heart rather than the left side. So that can sometimes be a nice tip off that they might have right-sided enlargement. Now. there definitely can be false negatives. So it's just something that's relatively cheap. And usually if you're there Mm -hmm. contemplating anesthesia, you have the equipment anyway. So something that's relatively cheap um, doesn't cause any invasive procedures at all. um, It's something I'd consider. I think that doing chest x-rays has its place, but sometimes can be not really any superior than just sending them straight for echo. So if you've got a client where they're not really convinced that they want to move forward with a cardiology assessment with an echocardiogram, you could offer baseline chest radiographs. The purpose is to try and see, is there severe cardiac enlargement? If we're looking for pulmonic stenosis, it's going to be right-sided enlargement. So this is going to be a widened cardiac silhouette on the lateral views. It's going to be a loss of a cranial waist. And then on the dorsoventral projection, we're going to look for a big MPA bulge. There's a big bulge that we see over there. But Nothing is going to surpass the ability of an echocardiogram to really diagnose the cause
0: of that burn. Yeah, cool. I've not heard I've not heard anyone say the phrase "loss of a cardiac waste" in, <laughs> in fourteen years. Uh, <laughs> it like, it's like I remember that phrase, and no one said it to me a long no time. One said it. Yeah, but I know. <laughs> all coming back from this. it really, it just came flashing <laughs> back. Like I was in I was in a classroom <laughs> in Gainesville, Florida. And I was like, oh yeah, um, okay, so. So my recollection of radiographs. Just stepping back to that. So yes, uh, cardiac enlargement. Do you see the actual uh, stenosis in these? I mean, can you see in, in the vessels anything like that? Is a hundred percent just looking for signs of change in the in the uh, in the heart itself? I'm just sort of trying to to get my head around. Uh, I'm just trying to remember back to what uh, what yeah. that looks like in severe. It, it, so pause. Uh, in my recollection, there were radiographs in that school that I looked at that 100% showed the pinch stenotic you know, of vasculature coming yeah. out. Is that, is, is that a thing that we're ever going to see, or are we 100% assessing the heart itself?
1: With, with traditional radiography, you're not going to see that because you're okay. just going to see soft tissue and blood superimposed. So those are going to be the same opacity. In the good old days, they did radiograph angiograms, so in school, they probably showed you some really cool images where they did an injection of contrast and then took a radiograph. You can see that level of stenosis and you can see the heart chambers. Um, now we use echo for those things. And then we do angiograms in our cath labs when we're doing procedures. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Talk to me a little bit about um, about the echocardiogram. Uh, so I know that most of the GPs are, are probably not running them Um just uh, easy to find. I mean, is there any any pearls or words of wisdom, anything that I want uh, when I, when I refer this? If I have an internist come and look at it, things like that. Do I want to say anything to them, or just go? It's an echo, and they're gonna they're gonna look, and they're gonna be, oh, here's your problem.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think this is sometimes a little bit of a delicate subject, especially amongst cardiologists and other specialists that do have the ability to do advanced imaging. So, I think most cardiologists feel that any congenital case, it's probably best served by being echoed by somebody that has a lot of practice um, Mm -hmm. or has the ability for, even if they're a radiologist that's very well-trained or an internist, sending those out for review by a cardiologist, just because some things are very basic and very simple about it, but there are other little nuances that are really important. So um, just because they only have one congenital heart disease doesn't mean they couldn't have a second one that's hiding. And so that's, Really important for us because that is going to impact the way we treat those cases, the prognosis we give, um, and the interventions we recommend. So, ideally, a cardiologist if you can, otherwise, someone with good echo technique um, has a machine that's specifically for echo and then has the ability to get that red by. For you.
0: Gotcha. That's that's a good reminder that, that makes a ton of sense. Hey guys, I just want to jump in here real fast and give a shout out to Banfield the Pet Hospital for making our transcripts available. That's right. We have transcripts for the Kona Shame vet podcast and the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast. You can find them at drandyrook.com and at unchartedvet.com. This is uh part of their effort to increase inclusivity and accessibility in vet medicine. We couldn't do it without them. I gotta say thanks. Thanks for uh for making the, the content that we put out more available to our colleagues. Guys, that's all I got this time. Let's get back into this. Am, am I going to see anything if I do if I do a blood pressure check on this patient? So a lot of times we'll get, them, uh, get patients in and just the first thing we do is check their blood pressure as we're surgery, prepping them. Am I going to see abnormalities there?
1: It's a great question. So for better or for worse, the, the pulmonic and the systemic circulations are completely separated by the lungs. So there's no way to check what the pressure in the right side of the heart is with a systemic blood pressure. We have to rely on using our central venous pressures. So a cheap way to do it is look at the jugular veins. So if the jugular veins are distended or bounding, or you can see the pulses, um, which is challenging in English bulldogs, (laughs) I will say. But if you can see those things, that tells us there's elevated right atrial pressure. Um, if they have ascites already, distended abdomen, that would be an indication. But sadly, there's no way short of really sticking something down into the heart to get a measurement of those pressures.
0: Gotcha. Okay. that's. Uh, are there breeds where you can pretty easily see the uh, sort of uh, bouncing jugular veins? Because I'm like, that's a diagnostic test that I want to do now. I want yeah, to see that. Yeah, okay. yeah,
1: it's really cool. So you can have, it's um, kind of like horses. So they're, they can be normal up to about a third of the neck, like out mm-hmm. of the thoracic inlet. So if you've got like a really athletic dog that comes in and they're like super excited you'll actually see them sometimes just pulsing in the neck but the ones that we're looking for are the pulses that go all the way up the neck or where the jugular veins are so distended you can see them just by like wetting the fur with alcohol you can actually see them standing up so my trick for the ones that are more difficult is to hold off the jugular vein like i would for a vena so hold off at the thoracic inlet find the vessel and then let go with my thumb and if i can still feel the vessel the same it's still that distended I
0: know it's abnormal. That's a super cool diet. I want, I'm desperate now to see that so I can point <laughs> at, across the treatment room and say to my yeah. technicians, that dog has elevated right systolic pressure. And just, and they would look yeah, at me like, like Merlin walked in. And I'll be like, X-ray what? eyes. Yes, <laughs> you, I can tell. I won't tell them I did it. Just like, I but just know. I can smell it.
1: Exactly. Just, just like wave your hand over. So I can, atrial pressure. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's really I, helpful. <laughs> It's really helpful. It, it's for any cause. So this could be a patient with bad heart room disease. This could be a patient with bad tricuspid valve disease, pulmonary hypertension. Um, it's the same. as true with the only tricky one is with tamponade. So if you've got pericardial effusion and tamponade, you'll likely see jugular pulsations. So helpful, helpful tool.
0: Well, let's let's fix this. What are my treatment options? What am I going back to the pedal nurse with when I say, "Hey, unfortunately, this is what I found." Um, obviously, we're not going to. Go do this uh, procedure today. Instead, we're going to work up a new treatment plan. Uh, what do you think that that treatment plan sort of looks like?
1: So, typically, it all starts with diagnosis. So, again, going back, getting that echo, finding our fulmaral diagnosis, and then the probably the more important parts are how significant is it? So, there's grades of pulmonic stenosis and there's types of pulmonic stenosis. Okay. So, the most common kind of pulmonic stenosis we see is truly of the valve itself. So, it's where the valves leaflets there's they all kind of formed like they were supposed to except they never separated into three leaflets so we just have like kind of this mush of leaflets that are doming they never open all the way um so it's a valvular pulmonic stenosis we call those we used to call these type a meaning um, they were very amenable to going in and doing a balloon procedure which we'll come back to in a second okay Um, the other type is this kind of Type B morphology, which is unfortunately what the bulldogs seem to be plagued with more often. And that's where the whole annulus itself, so the circumference of the valve, is smaller than normal. So the whole okay. thing just is underdeveloped. Right. Um, and so those animals may not be as amenable to a bullying procedure, but we have to echo to find that out. Mm-hmm. There's other levels of obstruction, but again, the valve is the most common. Um, French Bulldogs are in a class of their own. They get this obstruction above the valve as well. Um, we call it a supra-valvular stenosis. Um, But again, ECHO answers that question for us. So once we know what kind, we have to know how bad is it? So we use a few variables to help us with that. We're basically just trying to say, is this obstruction mild, moderate, or severe? That's the, okay. the easiest way is to use the speed of blood leaving the right ventricle across that obstruction. So it's just like the garden hose effect. So if you take your thumb over the edge of a garden hose, blood or you know, water speeds up and it creates a turbulent jet. Same thing in the heart. So the smaller that opening is, the more turbulent the blood flow is. So we can use the speed of blood flow to tell us how severe the obstruction is. And so classically anything over a pressure gradient of 80 millimeters of mercury is considered severe. So okay. Normal, to put it in perspective, is less than five millimeters of mercury. So we're talking like way, way, way severe. These animals have thick right hearts. Um, they might be symptomatic. They may not at the time of diagnosis. But the concern is that they will become symptomatic. They could develop congestive heart failure in their life. Honestly, by the time they're five to six years of age, they could die suddenly from arrhythmias. So it's these severe categories that we want to treat. So the two main stays of treatment are medical versus interventional. So the medical kind of tried and true drug that we usually put these guys on is one called Atenolol or some type of beta blocker. So this is kind of common throughout literature and things. Um, I think there's a common misconception that when we put them on Atenolol, it makes their stenosis better. It doesn't do anything to the anatomy of the valve. What it does is it reduces the workload on that heart by and the myocardial oxygen demand in the heart. So Mm -hmm. beta blockers slow heart rate, they reduce contractility those are two determinants of cardiac oxygen demand. So we're trying to protect the heart muscle from arrhythmias, from progressive changes, and trying to prevent their heart rates from getting too fast. So that way they hopefully have a longer prognosis and a better survival Mm -hmm. time. Ideally, we take them to the cath lab. That's that's like one of my favorite things to do. So we take them to the cath lab and we do the balloon valvuloplasty. So this is where we actually take our special catheters Go in through the heart, and we can access through the jugular vein or the, or the femoral vein. We go in and we basically inflate these special catheters. It's a balloon, inflate it across the valve, and we tear open those leaflets. So, the medical management is, of course, very cheap. A <laughs> mm-hmm. is a very readily available drug. It's very cheap, minimal side effects. Again, it doesn't change their anatomy, it just protects their heart muscle from the negative effects of that disease. The interventional approach is usually going to be a few thousand dollars. It's usually only available at specialty hospitals with cardiologists that also have a cat lab. So almost every academic institution does it, not as many private practices do. But this is like our bread and butter. So we're usually doing two to three of these a week at pre for example. And those dogs, we think, typically have a success rate of about 80% of the time. Sometimes that valve re-stenosis re-narrows and we have to do it a second time. Sometimes the anatomy is such that we can't, inflate the balloon appropriately or despite our best efforts, that valve doesn't want to budge. And so now there's even newer techniques like placing stents in there um, and doing some really cool stuff. Uh, but that's all something that can be discussed with the cardiologist and that client at the time. of the
0: appointment. Gotcha. Okay, let me ask a potentially silly question, but it makes some sense to me anyway. If I have this dog and they have a uh, pulmonic stenosis and we're talking about, let's say, me- let's say medical management, right? We're, we're not going to go and surgically repair this. Is there clinical benefit to at some point when the patient is uh, is, is a stable, you know, solid surgical candidate? candidate to doing this brachiocephalic airway surgery to open it up to increase oxygenation to the dog. And so I, as, as I think about that, and I, and I can 100% see in my mind talking to the pet owners and saying, hey, this is where we are and we're going through the process. And then they kind of panic and say, oh my God, well, she's so fragile. You know, we, oh, you definitely don't want to do surgery. Is there a place where I say, well, let's, let's manage this? There's still benefit to doing this airway surgery, um, and, and I, I believe that for the comfort of the patient. I, I do believe that. But l- let me ask you, is there clinical benefit to a pulmonic stenosis patient that's a bulldog to be able to breathe?
1: Yeah. No, I think I think absolutely there is. So um, it becomes this very kind of delicate balance of, okay, well, I found a heart disease in this pet. So if it's mild to moderate stenosis, you're done. They can go do get a okay. procedure. They're on some atenolol It's fine. When then that severe category, we really think, wow, ballooning this dog would make it a more stable anesthetic candidate. Doing its airway would make it a more stable anesthetic right. candidate. Um, so there, actually, there are a number of these dogs where they have severe enough problems of both that I have them come to me. I balloon them and then have my surgeon do their airway before they wake up. That's oh, wow. what I'll do if I have a client that is dedicated to doing those things. We'll do it. Um, it makes my anesthesiologist happy because these dogs are not the fun ones to anesthetize. They're hypotensive. Some of them have intracardiac shunts. They've got shunting across their atrial levels. Um, So they're not very fun to anesthetize um, if they have severe, severe stenosis. But you're exactly right. A lot of these dogs, I do think, can be more clinically affected from their airway than from their heart, at least at that point in time. So maybe there's that acceptable risk that you have a skilled anesthetist who's comfortable with a quick procedure, a surgeon who's comfortable with a quick procedure to just make that dog clinically better in the short term.
0: Can you give me an idea of prognosis for mild, moderate, and severe uh, with and without surgery?
1: Yeah. So, so six answers. That's a six yeah.
0: answer question.
1: <laughs> well, I'll lump it, it into like three. So okay. if it's mild to moderate stenosis, we rarely recommend interventional procedures for those dogs. Okay. So there's been enough evidence that for most dogs, as long as they're in the mild to moderate category they're not expected to have negative side effects from their heart disease in their lifetime. It's very uncommon. There are some exceptions to that, like larger breed dogs, it seems. They seem to be a little bit more sensitive to even moderate degrees of stenosis. So we use the changes to the heart more than anything. So if their heart looks like it's thick, um, we'll say, let's go do this and get rid of it um, and you know, try and give them their best chance of life. For the severe dogs, so gradients over 80. And this is honestly a very wide range of dogs because we've got tons of dogs that have gradients over 200, right? So that dog is going to have a worse prognosis than the dog of 85, but they're still both severe. So it's a little bit fuzzy there, but the median survival time for dogs with severe stenosis without intervention is about five to seven years of age. Okay. Um, usually those dogs are dying from their heart disease. That's when we, when we talk about it, it's cardiac causes of death. So it's refractory heart failure, um, progressive syncope that can't be controlled uh, exercise intolerance or or arrhythmias and sudden death. Um, those are kind of the more common outcomes that we'll see. Um, but usually it's probably around five years of age is when it really starts seeing to be the worst. Um, with intervention, if we are successful, meaning we get them into at least a 50% reduction of their initial gradient, our whole goal is to get them out of the severe category. If we do that, then they have essentially a normal life expectancy. So that's the cell is, it's it sounds like a lot, up front even if the dog is asymptomatic at that time but we're trying to get you years of quality of life with the dog dying from something other than the heart disease
0: that makes total sense. Dr. Mack, thank you so much. Are there any final pearls, words of wisdom, or uh, pitfalls that I need to look out for as I head forward with this case?
1: I would just say, I think you've done the best things. Everything else can be done, honestly, under the guidance of the cardiologist and just a team approach with everything. Um, but the breeds I'd watch out for every Bulldog, Frenchie, English, doesn't seem to matter. Um, any Terrier breeds, Pitbull Terriers, uh, Norfolk Terriers, West Ham and White Terriers, those ones are the most commonly affected and um, it could be any breed, but just every time you've got that new puppy in the room, listen really high up in the axillary region at the base of their heart to find these murmurs
0: That's fantastic. Thanks again. You're welcome.
1: And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a ton out of it. I know I
0: did. Um, thanks to Dr. Mac for being here, guys. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Talk to you soon. Bye.